There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at Grant's microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad, almost a 27-year veteran. And with me tonight is another veteran of the NYPD, retired NYPD Sergeant and Professor Mike Geary, Professor of Criminal Justice at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Great to have you here tonight, Mike. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me, having me on. You know, I'm back. I'm back in Florida. And I, I told Mike while we were off the air a funny story. I was waiting in Westchester Airport and a uniformed Westchester cop comes up to me and says, you're Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff. <laughs> and, I, and I thought it was so funny. I, you know, you never take it that you're going to be recognized somewhere. And I was actually recognized in an airport of all places. But That's great. Uh, it, 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 was, it was funny. I, I don't take those things Lightly, I was amused by it, but I um, humbled. I, I should say I was I was humbled by it. Oh, so, Mike, good to know people are looking or watching. Yeah, yeah, it feels good to know. Yeah, people are watching it, and fondly. Yeah, that that did make me feel good. I, uh, you know, I could go to Florida, and uh, I flew here last night. It's like two hours and forty five minutes, and you're in a different climate, same time <laughs> zone, but a different Great. climate. It was about seventy five in Florida. I came from like what. 32 or whatever in a day, a couple of days before is like 20. Right. Anyway, let's go to the, to this case. You know, Mike, this case is much more difficult than I had thought when it first happened. I was thinking this is going to be solved in a week or a couple of weeks, but certainly it's, it, it's a difficult case. And you think about the police and the Idaho state police, the Moscow police and the FBI what are they doing right now? Where do they go from here? Have they hit a wall in certain aspects? And what are they doing to get over this wall? Are they putting their investigative heads together? Are they getting referrals from other investigative minds out there on, on what they could do, what they should be doing? Or, or do they have a completely focused direction in which way they're going? Yeah. Do they have a potential suspect, or as the media puts it, a person of interest? And I hate that expression, right? Of interest. Do they have a suspect in mind? Now, I we're mean, learning. I, Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Go no, ahead. I'm sorry. I think early on, when you first, when they first went to the crime scene, within the first say 48 hours, by the time the uh, Argonne State Police arrived and the FBI arrived, and everyone's memories are fresh, uh, the students could remember where they were, you know, the day before. And uh, not a lot of time has elapsed. And that's why we look at the critical 48 hours uh, from the time that um, a crime has been committed, because you can develop a lot there. People's uh, recollections are fresh. Uh, people who may be have conspired to engage in a homicide may not have gotten their heads together to come up with a, a clear story that sounds believable to police when they if they get questioned. Um, and so that's important. 
And what a lot of what you see in, in with young people today, very different generation than us, is you see a lot of talking, texting, a lot of information out there on cell phones, uh, email, as you, you know, those sorts of media that we really didn't use many years ago. And so you can gather a lot of information. And I think when people are in shock, when they first find out what had happened, you may get a lot of uh, spontaneous statements by um, the, the students. Well, I, I might've heard this, or I might've seen that, or wonder who could have done it. And they may suggest someone. And you get a lot of that information right in the beginning. And that's wonderful. And maybe you can begin to develop you know, a line of thinking as you and Phil and I have talked about this many times and to go with, you know, what is a theory of the crime? What seems to be more likely and what you think uh, within the first two days may not really uh, be, be changed by what you subsequently find out, or it may when you start getting back um, some of the scientific evidence like blood you, or, and you start to look at other things like blood spatter pattern and DNA analysis, fingerprint analysis, those things take, you know, um, weeks. And and uh, like, for instance, fingerprinting, you can get those results back lickety-split. But DNA is going to take you four weeks. Uh, if you do autopsies, as you know, um, the uh, uh, when they do, you know, when they're looking at uh, whether or not there's what's in the bloodstream, you know, different kinds of alcohol or narcotics, you're looking to see what the as an indication of what may have contributed to a death, um, you know, especially if you're looking at a possible suicide, um, not in this case, but, you know, those sorts of things that takes weeks to get back those uh, those results. So in the beginning, you get your first flush of information and that's great. Uh, but even in uh, if you ever watch the show 48 hours, if hopefully the people who are watching this show, you know, do look at that show. It's an excellent show. But quite often, those cases are not solved in 48 hours. For most of the time, they get a lot of information 48 hours, but then they have to wait. And there's a, a lull for a while. And then months later, they, they will make an arrest. Sometimes you know, Mike, I worked, uh, as you know, in Manhattan North, and um, which was the 12 busiest precincts in Manhattan yeah. uh, during my homicide career. And prior to my precinct. Yeah, and prior to that, I was in the 2-3 squad, which is El Barrio, uh, Spanish Hall, mm -hmm. of extremely, back then, an extremely violent precinct. Yeah. And in itself, could have had a, a homicide squad within the 2-3 squad, because <laughs> that's yeah. how good the detectives were in the 2-3 squad. I went to the homicide squad, I was there for almost 10 years. The two three squad was as good or better than anyone in Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I don't say that lightly either, because Manhattan North Homicide Squad had some great detectives, but the two three squad was just as good. Yeah. And uh, they worked that precinct area, and that was the wonderful thing about working with experienced detectives is that when I got to a scene, I didn't have to bark out orders. They knew exactly what to do, and sometimes they would tell me, "Sarge, we're going to do this, or we're going to do that." Like, hey, you probably know better than me, you know? Right. And it's what a difference to work with experienced detectives. It makes things work faster. Faster than, and better and more efficiently, yes. you know? Uh, so although, you know, there's always the cute guy that wants to go to the hospital 
every time and never does a DD5. He's <laughs> a complete follow-up. He wants to take a free ride to the hospital. Oh, no one had anything to say right. and uh, not give you any paperwork. You know, what we're learning now to this juncture, it's been 35 days since this occurred. This occurred on November 13th. Someone in the chat stated, and I want to bring this up, that what hurt the investigation from the very beginning was the fact that it was the week before the break for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as this occurred, many of the students and the professors were going home. So they didn't have the wealth of people around that they could interview, that they could, uh, you know, pick the brains of people because people fled the campus. And yeah. fled is not a good word, but they left the campus. And then coming back, if they came back, many students didn't come back because they said, I'm till they catch this guy, I'm going to take classes online because I'm a little nervous yeah. about being in Moscow, Idaho. So that could definitely hurt the fluidness and the effectiveness of the investigation because many of the people that they wanted to interview, as I said, went home. I want to play this video. This is a video that apparently the Moscow police had very early on in the investigation, but we didn't find it out that they had it until, um, let me just, uh, I'm going to put this back up there. Uh, we didn't find out they had it till just very recently. Tracking a possible lead tonight in the brutal stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students, newly surfaced surveillance video appears to show Kaylee Gonsalves and Maddie Mogan walking with a man in downtown Moscow just hours before they were murdered. The two young women appear to be wearing the same clothes when they stopped at a food truck. In this new video, they are heard talking about a man named Adam. Senior national correspondent Brian Enton live on the ground in Moscow with more on how this new video surfaced. Brian? Natasha, we know that police have had this surveillance video since a few days after the murders, but we are now just seeing it for the first time. And it is not just video, there is also audio. Surveillance video newly obtained by News Nation shows what appears to be Kaylee Gonzalez and her best friend Maddie Mogan walking in downtown Moscow, Idaho, just hours before they were murdered. You can hear their voices in the video. For the first time, we are hearing the name Adam. The attorney representing the Gonzalez family says they believe Adam is a bartender and that he is not a suspect at this time. The Moscow Police Department not commenting specifically on the video, but in a statement to News Nation said any digital content submitted as tips and leads becomes part of the investigation. We review and investigate submissions. Findings become part of the information we do not make public to maintain the integrity of the investigation. Meanwhile, the Gonzalez family is questioning whether the investigation is being handled properly by Moscow police, especially within the first 48 hours after the murders. Their attorney spoke to News Nation's um, Chris Cuomo. From the get-go, we still get more and more information every day about mishaps or missteps that I think the investigation has made. You know, one of the questions we asked when we went in was, why not, within the tw first 24 to 48 hours, release some information about, we're looking for someone that may have missed work, that may have uh, come in with, you know, injuries to their form. You know, Mike, is this really the job of the family and the job of now the family attorney to question how the police are conducting this investigation or should they be conducting it? Do you go, you know, 
all of these people that are doing these news reports, the people go to their job and question mistakes they made. And surely they make a lot of them and uh, tell them how they should be doing their job. Uh, I find that a little bit overly intrusive. Yeah, it's, um, you know, he's not there working as as an intermediary between really the police and, and, and the families. He's working for this for specifically for the Gonsalves family. And our heart goes out to them and the other families. And, you know, they want answers and they want and they want more information from the Moscow Police Department. Perhaps the information that they received early on in the very first, as he mentioned, 48 hours was very maybe contradictory. And we know that the uh, mayor uh, did not do a real service to the investigation by coming out with a very interesting, maybe strangely worded uh, assurance to the public. And so, yeah, there was a lot of concerns that what the heck is going on at, at the very at the initial uh, phase of the investigation. And yes, would it have been excellent if the uh, Moscow PD had put that out there to let people know, by the way, we're looking for a particular, maybe a person or persons. Um, does anyone, uh, has anyone not shown up for work? Has anyone uh, maybe have gone to the hospital? Do you know of anybody that has an injury that seems inexplicable? Um, yes, that would have been good. However, that's not what happened. And for him to sit there and use that to suggest incompetency on the part of the Moscow PD, who's working, remember, not on their own. They are working in conjunction with the uh, Utah State Police and the FBI. So, yes, are they the most experienced investigators like you discussed in the 2-3 precinct? Uh, no, but they are working hand in hand with uh, two agencies that have tremendously more, tremendous more resources than they do. This doesn't do anything more, um, I think, really than drive a wedge between the families and, and the, and the uh, police department. And it has turned what, you know, a supportive, maybe, maybe not the best in terms of communication, but a very supportive uh, feeling between the PD and the families, it turns it into more of an adversarial relationship. Um, and I would, um, I, if I was uh, a member of the investigation team or a chief in the uh, Moscow PD, I certainly would not bring this man in behind closed doors and give him some very confidential information or sensitive information that they wouldn't want to be made public because you, you kind of have the idea that he will then go and be on a, a, a talk show or given a, um, a report to a newspaper reporter or go back to the other families and discuss what he's learned. We, you know, there's no way you can have him assure the families, don't worry, I spoke to the PD, they're doing fine. They have concerns about the security of the information. I doubt he would do that. I would. It would be wonderful if he did, but he's under no obligation to do that. What he would probably do is tell them all of the details that they gave. And then at that point, you have a lot more rumors and misinformation going out to the public because once it gets told uh, to that family, there's no the family members, there's no uh, holding back um, where they may go with it. They're free to talk to anyone they want. You know, Mike, I just wanted to say that um, I none of us, at least me sitting in my chair and mm -hmm. I know you sitting in your <clears throat> chair, want to criticize Steve Gonsalves. No, definitely he's, not. He's the grieving father 
lost his beautiful little girl and he's frustrated, he's angry. He's all of those things. He's, yeah, he's losing his mind the yeah. way probably all of us would. And he's looking for answers and he's not getting them quickly enough. But the police department has to be strong enough to stand up to him and say, look, we understand uh, where you're coming from. We understand you're in trauma, but we have a job to do. And we have to do it the way that we were trained to do it and the way that we think is best. And do police departments, and I say police departments, plural, do they make mistakes all the time? And But does any profession, the doctors make mistakes, the lawyers make mistakes, right? Everyone mm -hmm. makes mistakes. There's an expression in the police department that mm -hmm. I love and I take it with me for the rest of my life. And it's, it's very simple. And it goes... A thousand attaboys don't equal one ah uh, shit. <laughs> and that simply means you can do a thousand things right. You do one thing wrong and everyone remembers what you did wrong. That's right. And no one cares about the thousand things you did right. Right. That applies to a lot of professions. Some professions mm -hmm. are unforgiving and police work has happens to be one of them. Right. And if, if something was not done in a proper sequence, it doesn't mean that it's going to have a material uh, effect on the on the outcome of the investigation. Uh, we talked uh, a couple of days ago about the cars that were removed. They weren't removed right away and taken to like a garage and looked through with with as with a forensic examiner. They were left there at the scene for a while. And yes, it would have been great if they had removed those uh, the four cars right away, but they didn't. Uh, I'm all I'm I, I I'm hoping that whoever actually had touched the cars before they removed them was only investigators. And then you could preserve the chain of evidence by, you know, having at a, a, a headquarters, you know, a listing of a chronological listing of who actually accessed those cars before they moved them to a more secure location. Uh, does that damage the uh, chain of evidence? Does that destroy uh, forensic evidence inside the car that they were, um, sitting there for like a week before they were actually removed? Probably not at all. But um, it's, you know, those are the sorts of things that the uh, that the attorney um, is looking at, Mr. Gray is looking at, and you're not sure where he's going with his criticisms is what's what's going to happen 30 days out, 60 days, 60 days out. Um, Remember, he's working for the Gonsalves family, and he's he's not uh, a, a neutral arbiter, and he's using his position by getting and getting some information, being privy to some information, and using that 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 confidentiality that he has to actually, you know, um, take a take a cheap shot at the police department. Mike, I would just want to read this from the chat. Uh... At Michael Gary, there has to be some kind of advocate that it's their job of informing the family of progress because sure. it's not cool to let this family sit and wonder, I would be freaking out. Danny B, oh, yeah. I totally agree with you. However, many, many things have to be left confidential. And mm -hmm. even though the family are the ones that lost uh, a family member in this horrific uh, quadruple homicide, they cannot be privy to all the investigative information out there because you see what happens with it. Right. Look at the information that the coroner put out there, which I 100% mm. don't think she should have done. Definitely not. 
Uh, it's all over the place. Right. Look at the information that went out there, just little tidbits of information that he that he got from uh, the mortician from the funeral home. It Next thing you know, it's out there and it creates, I'll use an old police uh, colloquialism, it creates a shitstorm of misinformation yeah. out there and it creates... You know, more they, they want when they get tips and there's a tips log and every single tip called in has to be checked out. But you want tips that are good, that are fruitful. 90% of the tips you get are garbage. That's a French word for garbage, <laughs> you know. And I can attest to that because I've seen these tips come in. So just think of the busyness. And the FBI has some kind of database that can actually separate these tips and, and and so it makes it easier for them to work on them and to investigate them i mean my as a, as a father of of girls myself and and your your father i i can't imagine the pain that and any of the family members are going through um my, my issue isn't with them whatsoever not at all not at all it's with the attorney um using a position where he may be, have been given some confidential information uh, and spoken frankly to by the detectives, uh, thinking that he was, he, you know, that that he would understand what the the massive information that they have to um, manage quickly and and organize, and probably the fact that uh, he wasn't he was wasn't hearing things that assured him, and he made those public doesn't help at all. No. Um, you know, it's it's the, the police department, I'm sure, doesn't have a team, you know, handling the families. I'm sure there's probably perhaps one officer assigned because they don't have a large department like the NYPD. They don't have all of those, de uh, you know, all those resources. Um, and it, it, it's just it's a, the police are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They want to assure the families and I'm sure they're they're doing what they think they could consciously conscientiously do and professionally do and, and no more i want to start mike i want to bring this up just me comes up with a very good point okay. don't we also have to bear in mind that family friends and close associates of the deceased uh, and deceased plural also have to be investigated by law enforcement too sure. so they want to be privy to all info held by law enforcement just me excellent point you're right okay. so you don't want to give up all the cards in your hand no. As you would do in a card no. game, same thing. You don't want to do that in an investigation because in addition, when you make an arrest, you have to have things that you held back so that if you arrest someone, you know that you have the right person. Right. That they will know things that no one else knows because it wasn't put out there mm -hmm. uh, by the police. In the, yeah. uh, the case of the um, Richard Ramirez in California, the, the, the Night Stalker. Right. He wore a very specific pair of shoes that in the one of the burglaries, which was a rape and a murder, all in addition to being a burglary, he left a beautiful foot imprint in the dirt, get it going, trying to climb into the window. That was information that needed to be kept secret. Mm -hmm. okay. Some dopey chief told the mayor, and the mayor repeated it on TV. And now what happens when it's out there? 
now, do you think the killer's going to ever wear those shoes again? No. So a slam dunk piece of evidence you have was just destroyed by someone running at the mouth trying yeah, to score points for themselves. That's the problem with the with that I have with the uh, attorney. I have no problem with the Gonzalez family whatsoever. Even asking for for more information is and, and repeatedly no problem. But the fact that the um, account uh, the attorney got confidential information and he then repeated it publicly. If, if I would feel a lot better if he got it, private information about the details of the investigation and related quietly to the families and said, please do not speak to the news media about this. And I won't either, you know, this is all confidential. Please do not for the better, for the, for the, for our children's sake and for the, for the best interests of the law enforcement officers out there, don't release this information. The problem I have is he's going on TV and, and just spouting off about uh, critical uh, information that he's, using as a criticism of the police and that you know is Mike, I, I think that I think media gets addicting sure. because I remember during the OJ Simpson case oh, yeah. Um, oh yeah Nicole Brown Simpson was murdered but so was a waiter by the name Goldman, of Ron, Ron Goldman. Goldman his father couldn't get enough TV his mm -hmm. father was on every single TV station for the next year almost every single night Everyone knew him, and he had the handlebar mustache. Yes. And it was almost like, why is this guy on TV every single night? His son was just murdered and butchered. Why? It's There's some kind of addictive this. Yeah. I think to, to media and to attention, <clears throat> that even people in trauma, they want to go on, they want to be on, on TV all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess people grieve in such different ways. And perhaps the only thing I, I was in law school when that case was was going. I was in it was in my evidence class. I remember discussing it every, daily. I think he was probably trying to be a spokesman for his family and try to keep the name out there because everyone was talking about Nicole Brown Simpson and that other guy. And I, I have a feeling that he he wanted to keep his son's you know uh, name alive out there so that people would understand that. You know, that other guy who was murdered alongside Nicole was a, a human being and a person with a family. And he's my son. Yeah. And he's my son. I mean, again, how would I handle this horrific case if it was my daughter? I don't know. Let me play a little bit more. Their arms or their hands, things like that. It's a small, small community. Um, people that have taken a vacation immediately, things like that, 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 normal things that may be abnormal to people that live in the community and getting that out. Um, and they said they didn't do it because of an investigative reasons. Police continue to focus on the white Hyundai Elantra they believe was in the area of the house near the murders and are asking for tips related to the car. Detectives insist the investigation is not slowing down. With the holidays coming up, um, how does that impact the investigation? Because I know there's still dozens of FBI agents assisting and, and yeah. state police. Does that wind down at all? It doesn't wind down, but we realize that people need a little time, need a little rest. We want them sharp and ready and, you know, get some relief so they can come back and not miss anything, stay really focused. So the intensity and the pace will remain the same. But at the same time, just giving people some turns to, to get out with their families, get a little bit of mental break so they stay sharp. 
So police say that the pace will remain the same, but still no major updates. Uh, they haven't released any suspect information or a person of interest, uh, but they insist this is not a cold case. Natasha. I, I, I would like to make one comment about the, uh, what is, uh, the criticism that the attorney had. He mentioned about, again, talking about the, uh, asking the Moscow police, why didn't the Moscow police department put out there that, you know, everyone should be on the lookout for someone who has gone, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, <clears throat> taken unexpected vacation time, gone to the hospital. And I, I would imagine the reason why they didn't. And I said in the beginning, it might be a good idea to do that. Absolutely. I think they should have, but on the other hand, you could drive the person underground and, and they wouldn't seek medical help. And so that was probably the reason why they considered releasing that request to the public to be uh, strategically, you know, uh, not in the in the investigation's best interest. Well, you know, Mike, one of the an investigative checklist, and I hate to use that word checklist, but the NYPD was big with checklists. Yeah. And one of the things you would any kind of knife homicide. It would be routine and part of an investigative mm -hmm. checklist to call all mm -hmm. the area hospitals to right. check if someone came in with a cut, a knife cut to their hand or any other part of their body. And if someone did report that to the police and we want to know and we're going to want to go speak to that person as to how that occurred. You know, Mike, I'd spoken to you also off the air, and we spoke about um, two things that I think it, it could be very important in this case. And one of them is, and I'm going to let you explain it, and you can explain it in your prof professorial way. Uh-oh. I could, I could explain it in my definition way, but I want to talk about signature. What What is a signature in regard to a crime like this? Um, signature is part of the, um, the term. It's a subset of the term of modus operandi. And that is the mode of operating uh, in Latin, I would imagine, um, the way a particular criminal suspect goes about committing their crimes. If, uh, if they're a robber, maybe they always use a 45 automatic, or maybe they always point a knife at someone, or they always uh, follow an old lady and come at them from behind, or their um, their uh, modus operandi are always around uh, subway stairs late at night looking for people who are late night commuters. Uh, it's their particular way of operating. And if it is very, and, and we've run across that in our careers where you do see that people get comfortable if, they, if they're successful doing uh, their crime, burglary, robbery, uh, rape, whatever happens to be assault, whatever happens to be car theft, if they do it often enough and they're successful, They'll keep using the same sort of uh, method of operation, and because they know that it works, it works for them. And signature uh, is more where it, there's something very unique about it. Uh, perhaps um, uh, a rapist who, oh, maybe, you know, bites their uh, their their victim at, at uh, you know in terms of that sort of thing, or. Um, carves something in someone's chest with a knife um you know that or but that maybe, actually happened uh yeah in east Harlem. these yeah. guys um raped nuns 
yeah. and they carved this guy carved crosses in yeah. their chest. That happened in the two five precinct in the eighties. Yeah, there was another when I was in the academy. We had a sex crime detective come and gave us a fascinating um, a talk, and he spoke about this rapist who would rape, and he wouldn't take his penis out. He would take it out through his zipper. And that was his modus operandi. Right. He wouldn't take his pants off. But okay. So when he arrested him, he had cuts around his penis from yeah. his mode of operation. I hate yeah. to be so graphic, but this is this is crime, and this is an adult, an adult type thing. But so when he arrested him, of course, he had cuts, and he took pictures of it. It was the most damning evidence there was. To show his modus operandi and right. show the results. Right. Yeah, of the, it. yeah, the signature. You know, Mike, the I, have a, I have actually a definition of signature. Signature is yeah. an aspect of a crime that is completely unique to unique, the participant yes, right. and uh, commonly not shared by any other. Right. So the so, u- uniqueness would be the not the non removal of the penis, right? Yes, and, and the injury. Yeah, but let's talk right. about signature as it relates to this case or even modus operandi. Yeah. Now, um, this is, does this person has this person committed an, another crime like this before? Right. Or is this a first timer? It's possible they this person this specifically this person knows what they're doing and they can work pretty quickly, and um, they're violent, they're aggressive, they're there, and they can move stealth stealthily. Um, I am sure that a part of the investigation is the fact because Idaho is so close where they are in Moscow, so close to um, um, Oregon, I'm sure Oregon authorities and, and, you know, other in adjoining, adjoining states, they're looking to see if there has been recently in the past several years, um, anyone using a uh, large hunting knife uh, and cutting someone's throat. That's rather, that seems rather, a very signature kind of crime. You would expect that if you're going to stab somebody, you're probably going to stab them in the chest. Um, the fact that they he went for the throat, and that's from what we know, that seems to be uh, something that all four um, of the victims have suffered from. That if you have something that unique, and it happened perhaps a year and a half ago or six months ago in another state, you might think, it's possibility that we now have a serial murder that has not only a sequential murder, serial murder, whatever you'd like to call it, but has actually struck again. This might not be the first, second, third, fourth victims. Well, Mike, but, Mike, as, know, as far as modus operandi, yeah. the modus operandi in this case could be the stealthiness way that he somehow either snuck into the house mm-hmm. or was there, could have snuck in before, they got home or just moved so quietly into the house because he knew the house. Right. He had been there before and he knew how to get in and out. But that is certainly a part of modus operandi. If he yeah. has, and modus operandi, just by definition for you guys, is a learned behavior that evolves over time as offenders gain experience mm-hmm. and confidence. Right. So surely this guy was confident. He went into this house by himself. And he murdered four people with a knife. So was this learned behavior he had learned over time? And did he achieve confidence because he had done this before? These are all questions that I have. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like a real crime from a police perspective, 
then certainly you're in the right place. Go to our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel. You can see the folks in the chat in the green font with count them five different levels on our uh, YouTube channel. We'd appreciate all your support. And uh, as you, if you want to subscribe to us on YouTube, it's totally free. So just hit that subscribe button and give us a thumbs up. Yeah, so I just, you know, the when folks in the chat and uh, even in the public, no one is wrong in this case. Anything you say could be could be correct, could be true. And I would never put anyone down and say, oh, that's preposterous, because what we've learned over the years is nothing is preposterous. And life is stranger than fiction, real life. And that's the right. most outrageous thing could be what actually happened. That's right. This it's there's a possibility that this is the perpetrator's first four victims ever. And they started out committing homicide. That could very well be. And so you can never, ever discard that possibility. I think more of a probability is that this is uh, an M.O. And that there is probably I would I would want to bet my paycheck that there was other crimes involving slitting of the throat with a hunting knife within, you know, one of the boundaries of Oregon or, or another state. You know, Mike, I would think that they're, they're all busy checking out all patternable crimes like this, all mm -hmm. crimes throughout the United States of this type of thing, a, a burglary, uh, people sleeping with a knife, with uh grotesque stab wounds to the chest, to the throat. I would think that the FBI, uh, the Idaho State Police, they're checking this out throughout the nation. And if they're not, they, sh they should be. Um, this is uh, Steve Gonsalves. I just want to play a little bit of this. And joining me now is the father of Kaylee Gonsalves, Steve Gonsalves, as well as their family's attorney, Shannon Gray. Um, Steve, thanks so much for joining the program again. I made a promise to you that uh, our audience would stay on this case and not let this case die. Uh, we had a cooling off period last week out of respect for law enforcement to bring the temperature down a little bit. What new can you tell us, Steve? I know we got this new surveillance video that was released by our digital team today. Um, what can you tell us? Um, that film... To the family, we've had that film for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe the business reached out to us directly and um, after they had given it to the police. So it, it was kind of comfort to, to us because it's it's just two girls having a good time talking about, uh, you know, asking about their bartender and, and just just being just being girls on their way to uh, the grub truck. Yeah, so you don't suspect that this guy, Adam, that's stated in the video is somehow a suspect or anything like that. You guys have known about this this video for a while. We have, and we asked, and we did the obvious due diligence when we looked into that, and uh, we've, we were pretty, it was pretty clear that this individual was not a part of uh, the investigation as far as a suspect. Good copy. So, Steve, what can you tell us about the investigation thus far? We, we, we've heard about the car details being released as well. Is there anything that we can do to 
to get some answers for you guys so we can get this suspect, whoever it is, in custody? Um, they've they've kind of informed us through uh, communications that this uh, they've checked all the easiest paths. So like if this individual had this car registered to his name and it was just something very quick that they could just look up in the area and, and go right to his house. They've done all the, the due diligence there. They've done all that. So now they're reaching out and they're going to look to the community, see if uh, this individual borrowed this car. Um, you know, it doesn't appear that it, it, it's something that they have real easy access to. So he may have ran and they really pushed the narrative saying, hey, if we can get these guys to focus on something that's really helpful, which is this car and, um, you know, find out if somebody says, hey, you know, that 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 car that looks a lot like mine. I'm going to come forward and just volunteer my information. And then, you know, they can figure out if somebody else had borrowed it or if it heck, who knows? You know, Steve, we talked about this off air. You know, I think that the car uh, information they also had for a long time. I really believe that. And that is uh, the kind of information that I believe should have been put out there right away. Uh, I don't know if they withhold that. I don't have any verifiable information that they withheld that. But I think uh, that's a possibility. I believe it's very important, too. I believe and in my heart that this car is the perpetrator's car. I think this is the car he used to escape. And it's so, so important. But now you talk about, is it a needle in a haystack when they talk about there being 22,000 Hyundai Elantras that are white in this vicinity? That's, you know, but then can't we narrow it down, A, through cars that were in that vicinity through some either video, toll booths, Right. Uh, cars that are registered to the area. Can't we limit, can't we break it down some way? There's got to be a way to, but I can't believe they got to go through 22,000 Hyundai Elantras. Uh, just me. Do you even know if it was the coroner that spoke to the daughter? Has it been verified? Because it could be, a, you know, just me. I believe the coroner spoke to Steve Gonsalves and he went on TV and gave a press conference or right. gave an interview about that. That's the only verification we have that that occurred. I don't think it was, he may, she may have spoke to the daughter also. Don't forget guys, the coroner is not a pathologist. The coroner in this case is a lawyer who is elected to that position. She has very, I think she's also a nurse. So that gives yes, us some yes. medical background, but she's not an MD. She's not a pathologist. She's not the one doing the autopsy. She's the one perhaps that has information from the autopsy, However, she's not the one performing the autopsy. So in that vein also, I think it's not her job to release information uh, regards to the autopsy. I think that should be either the office of the chief medical examiner or one of the pathologists that performed the autopsy. And in that vein of the autopsy, um, we are hearing, and I haven't had it confirmed, that uh, it's either back or very soon the toxicology will be back. And right. I, I believe that Dr. Uh, Michael Bodden, who was once uh, a, a big shot at the office, New the New York City office of the chief medical examiner, he may, I think years ago, he actually was the medical examiner. Yes, he was. But he's uh, he's uh, he's been at his job maybe a little bit too long. 
and uh, he's um, he was once one of the most respected and brilliant pathologists in the nation. But now he was talking about uh, on one of these shows about how important the toxicology is in this case. And I don't see why the toxicology is that important in this case. We know all the victims were out drinking. We know that. They want two of them were at a bar, and uh, and the, the other two were at, were at a fraternity party where undoubtedly there was lots of drinking. So unless we're going to – Mike, I know we spoke about this before we went on. The, unless there's going to be some bizarre drug in, in the systems of the victims, I don't see how it's that useful, Mike. I don't see how it's useful really at all because you're going you're gonna to find out that they have um, – a beer in the system, wine, you know, that sort of thing. You're going to find um, a, a trace evidence of what they had eaten in their stomach. You know, you were not looking at a case of a question, whether it's a suicide or whether somebody was drugged, uh, sedated. Uh, maybe that's what he's thinking, that there may be some evidence of some sedation, uh, some substance. But other than that, where there's a case of, well, is it a suicide? Maybe a, like a, a, a strange set of circumstances where you're not sure if it's a suicide or not. Yeah, what's in the person's system, like the Debbie Collier case, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, yes, it's really important. In this case, probably not, probably not, uh, because we know that they, they were, they've had a few beers and, and, and they went home and they went to sleep. And it's from the set of facts that we know at this point, there's no allegations that there was uh, any anything further in their system, any sedatives in their system, like, for instance, like a date rape drug or something like that, that would quickly wash out of their of their body. You know, um, so but I like, that doesn't mean that doesn't come into play anyway. They were in right. bed. We know they were all yeah. in bed and they were stabbed in their home. Right. I mean, exactly. Was, you exactly. know, you're right. This has nothing to do with someone getting drugs, someone yeah, getting so uh someone dropping someone a Mickey. This has to right. do with people at home in bed being slaughtered. So right. I, I could be wrong, but I don't see how toxicology mm -hmm. is really uh, going to tell mm -hmm. us anything in this case. Yeah. You know, folks, you're talking about, we're all expecting that, and I've said it from the very beginning, we're all expecting that smoking gun piece of evidence from the crime scene, that commingled blood which one of, part of it is the perpetrator's blood. So far, we don't have it, or we weren't told that they have it. Uh, so far, we don't know if there is a fingerprint of use. Could the perpetrator have been wearing gloves? Absolutely. He took a lot of precautions, right? Mm -hmm. He absolutely, no one saw him come in. No one saw him leave. He That's took right. a lot of precautions. How did he get in? Most people are arguing that they believe that he got in through the back of the house. All right. Uh, why did he leave the two girls on the first floor alive? How come they weren't attacked? Mm -hmm. Did he not know they were there? It would seem that he would know they were there because he knew everything else. Right. 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 Who were the first two attacked? Right. What's the chronology? Chronology, oh, really? I talk to my students, it's so important. The chronology of events that you could recreate at the right. crime scene. What was the chronology of who was attacked yeah. first? 
And was was it Ethan Chapin and Zena Canodal who were on the second floor? Or was it Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves who were on the third floor? That is, is very important. And, you know, we get into this whole thing, and it's been discussed a million times. Were they targeted? Remember in the very beginning they said this was targeted and personal. No one can specifically say that with any type of proof that they were targeted. And even um, a bunch of, there was a bunch of different FBI profilers on different channels. Mm -hmm. yes. Some better than others. I really liked a guy named Greg McCrary. I thought he was one of the, the best. And he spoke about how that because um, Kaylee Gonsalves had the most severe wounds, that doesn't necessarily mean she was targeted. It could mean that she resisted the most. She resisted uh, more than the others. So you yeah. can't just 100% say, oh, because this, then that. Because that, then this. Yeah, There's multiple the, reasons. It's one of the problems with the narrative is that people were spreading was that the idea that she had a stalker and A and B, since she had the most stab wounds, that the stalker was going after her. So it put two, you know, two things together and came up with a narrative. And um, it has turned out so far that with the investigation, as we know, uh, the police have not been able to confirm that there was actually a stalker. Uh, I think the most she talked about uh, being approached by a, a gentleman at some, a young man at some store, but they were already, had already been interviewed. Uh, and I think the family also thought at one point she might have complained about a, a stalker. And so, yeah, there might've been maybe someone that she complained that may, could have been a fellow student. I'm not sure how much information she ever gave anybody for the police to even be able to really narrow down who the person was other than a single gentleman who spoke to her or maybe even just tried to speak to her at, 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 a, at a store somewhere. Um, and that's the danger of, of too much information leaking out. I think one of the problems is uh, the family, the attorney, and, and the public sometimes feels that if they don't get information, that the police haven't thought of it. And as you, we talked about, just make, making a notification out there, a public notification, to, to look you know, about hospitals and anybody going to an emergency room with a, a wound. That's not to say that wasn't done, but it was done with a phone call, not a, a public broadcast. So the way that the police investigate are investigating this crime is they're trying to play everything as close to the best as possible. And other than being frustrated by a lack of communication, I am too, and I can understand the families and the community feeling the same way. It doesn't mean that the police aren't doing this in the most professional manner possible. No, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the things that I found I found a little bit amusing, uh, and this is just me, is that they went to a state prison. And more reports about the murders of four. And they interviewed a, a lifer about his feelings. I was like, what is this, the silence of the lambs? You know, let me play a little bit of this because I definitely find it like 
I don't think I ever in my police career I heard anyone doing this. For Idaho college students, a former medical examiner believes the toxicology reports in this case could help solve this murder. This coming after the coroner assigned to the case called the tests irrelevant to the horrific killings. A police officer's body cam also picked up a loud sound that could have been a scream around the time of the murders. Also, a convicted killer on death row believes the killer was waiting inside of the house before the savage stabbing spree. We want to bring in now former FBI agent Tracy Walder for her insight into these reports. Tracy, thank you so much for being back. Thank you for having me, Natasha. And, and first, what do you make of the San Quentin death row inmate giving an interview saying that he believes the killer was already waiting inside of the house? Does this theory have any merit? I don't want to say that it doesn't necessarily, because the reality is, is we still have no answers and we still have no suspects. And so what I do think is interesting and what I do think lends a lot of credibility and in, in, in this perspective is that he is a criminal and he is inside the mind of a criminal. A lot of times, you know, we rely on profilers and things of that nature who are not necessarily, you know, of deviant mind and, and involved in these kinds of activities. And so I do think that his theory has merit, but obviously I, I, I certainly cannot say um, if it's fully credible or not. Now, I do think um, it could possibly explain um, how the person perhaps knew the house so well if they hadn't been to the house before. Um, but then I think it really, in a weird way, casts a wider net um, in terms of suspects and that perhaps this isn't someone who's in either an immediate or sort of periphery friend circle of, of the individuals. And I think that in and of itself is scary. Um, the only reason I'm a little hesitant um, to, to fully um, embrace his theory is that the police, the one consistent thing they have done is, is they've pretty been, been pretty consistent in discussing the fact that this is a targeted um, killing, which tells me it's probably less likely that that uh, person that was unknown to them was, was laying in wait. I appreciate. I just find it a little bit, uh, you know, like silence of the lambs X S esque to um, say, go first of all, uh, that's not where I go to get my information from state prison to interview uh, a lifer about what his feelings are on this. I could care less what his feelings are on it. I don't think that's an educated way to find out. Uh, but as I said earlier, any free people out there, I will take your theories and respect them. But I don't think the, a state prison is where we go to get theories on, on what to do next in a murder case. I, I, I find it a little bit ridiculous. No, that's not helping. It's not helping at all. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is helping at all. Uh, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. Uh, and if you want to support us. We have a Patreon with uh, three different levels and also a YouTube channel membership with over five different levels. And you can support us that way. It's actually been a great year for uh, police off the cuff, real crime stories. We sort of uh, got on track. I just started doing real crime stories last year, earlier on when we started this podcast, we were mostly interviewing other cops about their careers. And uh, we sort of segued into doing national stories like this. And uh, I believe that these stories are, are so important. And some of the stories that we covered in 2022 were um, 
whodunits as well as heartbreaking stories. Some of the national stories that we covered were just, I almost feel like I'm back on the police department and I feel the PTSD you get, the real PTSD uh, you get from actually working the street and working some of these horrific cases. And I actually have felt that working some of these cases and some of the the horrible things that have happened to good people. And uh, that's how you feel when you're a cop, right, Mike? Yeah. Um, I remember my very first uh, homicide case. I remember my very first child abuse case. Uh, I can remember like as if in those that was many, many, many decades ago. And I could recall them as if they happened a month ago. Um, and I think the uh, people think of PTSD as only a military kind of uh, affliction, but uh, doctors, nurses, paramedics, uh, firefighters, and uh, responders, first responders like police and detectives, um, you know, that, that is a real thing. And these, these officers are doing the best that they can under trying circumstances. And they have, a, a, and I think we just touched upon it the other day, um, the crime scene isn't like an Agatha Christie crime scene where there's somebody who looks beautiful laying on the ground and you know it's just an actress lying yeah. there. And there's like one constable and like maybe six suspects. And it's a matter of 45 minutes before he figures out who did it. Um, the, it was a it was a uh, horrific crime scene. It was also tainted at the very beginning by the fact that people were invited over uh, and were in the bedrooms uh, because the two surviving girls were understandably freaked out about what they were seeing. And they probably could not actually believe what they were actually seeing. And so that makes it very difficult for the officers. And the officers have to deal with this in the most uh, professional way. And they are fathers and mothers themselves. And, you know, this is, they have to go through this uh, investigation process. And part of it is maybe painful by not sharing what they would like to share with the public. But I think, you know, the, the public has to understand they're doing their job uh, probably in the best uh, way possible. Absolutely. Tom Cusinelli, cell phone pings compared to Hyundai registered owner. What do you think, Bill? Tom, I think that if that were the case, we would have him already. Uh, I think that they have the car on video either at the house or in its closest vicinity to the house. And then they have the video of the car fleeing at about the time uh, that was consistent with uh, doing the murders. I want to play this. This is Ashley Banfield. And it's about um, them talking about contacting the vape uh, shop owner about a potential stalker. This would have been the second stalker. They had already cleared the first two stalkers that they had uh, spoke about early in the investigation the host of the Hidden True Crime podcast. She's been following this case from the beginning. You know Idaho well. It's kind of like your, your backyard as well. I want to ask you a question that, look, I have lived in a small town and I know the feeling sometimes of a small town. And when federal agents show up in a small town, it, it can bristle people. And I wondered, now that we know that the surveillance search or the information search has now branched out to like 24 miles away into those other small towns like Troy. How do the folks in rural Idaho or in those smaller towns, how do they like it 
when federal agents show up and start asking questions, are they helpful? Do they support the police no matter what level or what badge they're wearing? Or might they run into roadblocks and find this a difficult effort to try to extract information from folks far flung? Great questions you have there, Ashley. You know, what's interesting is I would say you're exactly right, typically, right? Uh, typically, you nailed it with the small towns. They're not going to like outsiders, uh, federal agents coming in. When it comes to this crime and this case, I think they're going to welcome it. I think, you know, how many students are going to come back to the, you know, University of Idaho if they if they don't solve this? How many people are going to be looking at this police department if uh, they don't arrest someone or solve this horrendous crime? The good news is the FBI has been involved from the very beginning. You know, it's always been a bit of a multi-agency investigation. That's going to be in their favor. People are already used to the FBI a bit, but expanding, bringing more in, it's going to be overwhelming to the residents. But I really do think when it comes to this case and this crime, they're going to welcome this and they're going to be willing to talk and willing to help. Look, I'm really glad for that. People have to support the police in this effort, even if they're frustrated and angry and they don't think that they're getting far. You have got to do everything when they come knocking, no matter what political views might be. Um, the other question I have for you, and I don't know if you're going to have the answer, but I wonder what your gut tells you. When I heard they're moving 24 you know, miles out and maybe even further, um, I thought two things instantly and simultaneously. Oh my God, they don't have anything. And they're, they're going farther in desperate search for anything. And then I corrected myself right away and I thought, oh, they're on they're onto something. They're following a trail. They've got a trail and it's taking them that way. What's your gut on that, Lauren? The exact same thoughts you have had. Again, you just said what everybody's thinking. They either have nothing, so they're expanding their search because they've done all they can in Moscow, or they have a trail and they're they're following it. Clearly, this car that you've mentioned, this launcher, is everything, right? And, and I think you also posed the same questions we all have, Ashley, which is, is this someone they just want to question? Because, and I love that you asked that question to Brian, because uh, why haven't they come forward? Or is this a suspect? You know, great questions. We're all asking them. And I think it's the same with them expanding this search. Do they have something? Is there a trail? Or or are they are they expanding because nothing Absolutely nothing. Because we're they, all yeah, waiting because, to find because, out. Because the trail's, trail's going cold in Moscow or right. is the trail getting hot somewhere else? So, um, Lauren Mathias, thank you. Great with You know, Mike, we had asked the same questions uh, off the air of each other. Um, and I think that this white Hyundai Elantra, the 211 to 213, I think that that's a huge, huge lead. And I think that that potentially is the perpetrator's car. And I think that they really, really 100% have to pursue that. Unsolved crimes, I lost your, um, what you said before. You said you had um, found out or figured out, that I th think there was like 340 something uh, white Hyundai, Hyundai Elantra, Elantras in the vicinity fitting that description. I could be wrong with the number, but uh, if you that was your research, that was your what you found out through your investigation, hand that over to the Moscow police. Maybe they didn't have the same, um, I hope they have a better database to check out stuff like that than you do, but there's some people in the, um, 
in the online community that have, that have unbelievable computer skills. Sandman, thank you. Sandman15, uh, thank you for the $5 super chat. Kaylee's ex did it. He heard she was with someone at the club, hoodie guy. Jack went there, saw two people in Kaylee's bed and freaked out. Well, you don't know that, but uh, I'm sure all of those potentialities are being checked out, have been checked out, are being checked out. And as we said, because they interview someone and they let that person go, that does not mean that person is cleared. I've, I said that a couple of weeks ago on Banfield. I've said it a million other times to other reporters. I said it online. At any time, anyone that you release, and if they, they're not in custody, so they're free to go. But you release them, you can always bring them back in. Because you release them does not mean they're cleared. I want to make that perfectly clear. Does not mean they're cleared. Mike? That's right. Yeah, they're, you know, you have to, well, as you mentioned earlier in the program here tonight, um, and it was the difficulty is in the beginning, you had all these students to interview um, and you're, you're just ramping up your investigation. You're doing as many interviews as you possibly can. And then suddenly it breaks for the holiday. And so you lose that momentum uh, with that part of the investigation. And then you have to wait for the students to come back. And then you hope that they all come back and they all are going to go back to the same dorm rooms where you know where you've left off, you know, in the community. And they, that might not be true. So it, it's one of those, those uh, the things that happen in, in a real investigation that you don't see like on a TV movie or you don't read about, but that's what happens. And then so it, it kind of derails the investigation a little bit. And so you have to put that aside until you can, you know, get those, those students come back and pick up where you left off. But in the meantime, you're doing something else. And, the, and I just want to speak about the Honda real quick, is that uh, Ashley Banfield, uh, I, and I, I think it was great that she said it and she admitted it, that when she first heard the idea that they're looking for this Honda, uh, you know. Uh, Hyundai, Mike. I'm sorry. Hyundai, Hyundai. <laughs> Hyundai. you Hyundai. said Honda. Like, sorry. Sorry, I don't mean anything about the Honda. Nothing personal about the Honda people. The uh, it, It's 40 miles away. That's a, you know, she thought that, Perhaps they were just grasping at straws, but the fact is, if you're going to do that, you've got in your mind as an investigator, investigative team, that this person has gone in that direction. They're not looking down, you know, uh, in, into uh, you know a different state, uh, you know, a thousand miles to the to the east. They're looking to in a particular direction on a couple of particular roads, and so that gives me heart to say, you know what, they have a mission. They have a pretty clear idea by this point what has gone on even if they don't have all of the toxicology reports back the dna report back all the fingerprint report back you know all the other things just through well, hard police work absolutely will i really don't think the person who committed the crime was laying in wait inside beforehand i do think they spent a lot of time watching a watcher type knew they the layout visually will you know something? Who am I to say you're not right? You could be 100% right. right or you could be 100% wrong. Uh, there's certain things. You know, someone asked me um, in, in the chat, not on this one, that they were talking about patternable actions by the perpetrator. And what does that mean? 
And that means that he, he's doing certain things that are consistent with other things and that they can lump those things all together. We spoke earlier on signature and modus operandi and pattern, patternable things are things consistent with the behavior of the perpetrator in this case. So they can lump things together either psychologically, why would he do that, uh, or even psychosexually. Uh, many people thought, behavioral analysts thought that there was a sexual component to this attack, even though there was no sexual attack. Does that make sense to you folks? That there was a sexual component, but there was no sexual attack. Yeah. And I think it makes a lot of sense to anyone that's studied homicide or worked homicide and knows the um, the psychology of some of these killers. Mike? Yeah, I think uh, the idea that um, that there was a sexual component to the attack, I think probably comes from the, the idea that, A, she had a stalker, and the stalker may have been the one watching from, you know, a particular girl's, like Haley's bedroom from the... Uh, woods, the wooded area in the evening, and that the attack was in regards uh, as, as an answer to a possible rejection of an advance. Um, yeah, that's all a distinct possibility. Uh, we can't be 100% sure, but if that were the case, then yeah, there is a, a, a sexual component to it, even if there isn't a, a sexual act like a rape completed. Um, so yeah, that's a, a, a good, it's good a theory as any, you know, I would like to know in this case too, and I and I I don't believe that um, that this is the work of a serial killer for several reasons. But I, I'm wondering if in this attack that the perpetrator took a trophy or a souvenir, as they call them, right? And that's commonly taken by a killer um, from a crime scene from a victim so that at a future time or date, the perpetrator can relive the attack, re re relive the excitement, relive whatever they got out of this attack. And I think that also has to be um, considered because that is an evidentiary type thing. Look, I believe that there's going to be an arrest in this case. I believe that with all my heart and I... Uh, I pray that there is going to be one, but I really do believe that if you're an atheist, I believe it. And if you believe in God, I believe it. Uh, I just think that there's so much evidence in this case that there is absolutely going to be an arrest. And we pray, we hope and we pray for these families that they're going to get closure through an arrest and through not just an arrest, but a conviction that whoever did this horrific crime is going to spend the rest of their life in prison. Yeah, I think uh, just looking at the idea about with the Honda and the information they've given out and looking and expanding their, um, you know, uh, dragnet, if you will, um, the idea that um, in a way, perhaps that we've we've gone to the second phase of the investigation because we have a direction, perhaps of flight. You have a, a possible identity of uh, the getaway car. Um, so it might end up being that the police have actually done as much as they possibly can in the local area uh, with it, with their interviews and that we may be looking at, uh, you know, getting back the DNA evidence or all that other evidence, but also 
we're now maybe in the phase of almost almost like of, of a manhunt away, which is something that would be more satisfying to the police because at that point you feel like, okay, we've got a direction that we're moving in. And that really uh, helps the police, re-energize the police when you feel like you're in that part of an investigation. Absolutely. Paul Vest, there may have been no sexual assault, but this case screams of sexual anger, frustration, mm -hmm. and the perpetrator's inherent knowing of his inner inadequacy, in my opinion. Paul Vest, I happen to agree with you. And what do they say? Great minds think a lot alike. <laughs> there has to be a little bit of humor to this show with such a serious yeah. topic. I want to just play a little bit of the Moscow chief and then we'll um, start uh, wishing everyone a happy, happy holiday. Let me play a little bit of this. Did um, massive amounts of um, video footage, especially in the critical camera areas. And um, we looked at the 24 hours prior to and 24 hours after of those. And now we're look, extending that out even further to other cameras and other time, time frames. We go through the latest developments in the University of Idaho murder investigation. From updates on the search for a car to a new stalker report, we get into it all. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Long Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. We have had an interesting past few days in the University of Idaho quadruple murder case. The killings of 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zoner Kernodal, and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. While there's still no arrests, no suspects, no recovered weapon, we do want to do a bit of a recap of some of the latest developments that we've been seeing and hearing. And we're going to start by talking about the white Hyundai Elantra. Now, as you recall, police asked for the public's help in identifying this car because they believe that it was near the crime scene at the time of the murders. Well, here is Moscow Police Captain Roger Lanier explaining some of the latest on the car and why it is so important. Well, through our tips, through our leads, some of the evidence that came in, we start to identify patterns. And like we said earlier, we are confident that the occupant or occupants of that vehicle had information that's critical to, to this investigation. We also understand that even though there's some, sometimes a fascination with a particular case, some people simply don't see the news and may not know that we're looking for it. So if we get the word out there, hey, maybe your neighbor has one in the garage that they don't drive very often. Maybe um, the, there's one that's not on the registry database. Let us know. So far, we have a, a, a list of approximately 22,000 registered white Hyundai Elantras that fit into our uh, criteria that we're sorting through. That's an awful lot of information, but it may not be all of them. So the public uh, can help us with that. And so folks, that gives you sort of uh, an answer to some of the questions you might have in regards to the Hyundai Elantra. Folks, I want to thank everyone for staying with us tonight and uh, we're going to continue covering this case. It is a fascinating case. This case demands an arrest, demands justice, demands that we catch the savage that, that did this. And uh, I want to wish everyone uh, just a, a wonderful holiday, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. Be careful going to all these Christmas parties if you drink. Don't drive, as they say. It's easier this day, this day and age than ever before. You can take an Uber, right? 
hopefully the Uber, the Uber driver sober and drives you home, right? Uh, but guys, I want to thank everyone that supported Police Off the Cuff. And I want to thank everyone that has um, tuned in tonight. Uh, we try to bring you the most update information. We don't, we try not to dwell too much on the, the uh, internet noise. We try to give you factual, you know, factual stuff and how a real investigation is conducted. Mike, final words. Oh, final words. Just to say for everyone, no matter what uh, religion, denomination they are, uh, light a candle and say a prayer for the uh, families of the deceased um, and just, you know, think of them and uh, say a prayer for them. Absolutely. Folks, from Police Off the Cuff, Bill Cannon and Professor retired NYPD Sergeant Mike Geary, have a great night and God bless. Take care. One episode, just ain't enough.